Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Thackeray. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in the bar and restaurant industry. My pursuit in this podcast is to have difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm just glad you. <laughs> de nada, de nada. Um, all right, so first question. Let's start at the beginning. What was your first job as a server? No, my first job in hospitality, actually. Okay. You want to go back further? Yeah. Um, because for me, service, working as a server, you're not a server unless you understand the idea of hospitality, right? Otherwise, you're just a waiter. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's just the way I see it. You can take orders, run food, but if you really care about people and bespoke service, like uh, he's going to need, he's going to ask for mint jelly with that lamb, right. whatever, bring in the mint jelly if you're in that kind of restaurant, right? Right. It should be served with mint jelly, so automatically bring the mint jelly, whatever it is. But, and I think... Um, so my first experience in hospitality was at a Chick-fil-A. Really? And, of course, Chick-fil-A is now a uh, fast food, you know, franchise, you could say, who prides itself on saying, my pleasure, at the end of every interaction, right? And so their commitment to hospitality is, is admirable. I mean, it's super interesting if you study them. And I studied them, and I got this job at Chick-fil-A because my uncle owned this Chick-fil-A. He, fran he owned franchise. Uh -huh. and or he franchised it and it was on the U.S.-Mexico border in Brownsville in the valley and then the Mexican adjacent city was Matamoros so oh. Matamoros Chick-fil-A's are largely in malls right or they're adjacent to targets nowadays but they, this was in a mall called the Migoland Mall and it was on the border right there as soon as you cross the bridge and it was a great mall. It had all the fancy department stores. Wow. Dillard's was fancy back then. So, um, all the, a lot of folks from Monterey, from, uh, from Mexico City, from large cities uh, who have the money to travel, right, by a plane or drive or whatever, all the way to the border where they could shop at an American store and get their fancy, you know, whatever it was. So those are the people that went to the Chick-fil-A. Uh -huh. And I didn't know much Spanish back then because I was, uh, I grew up, well, I was raised and born on Long Island, but when I was very little, we moved to Texas, and so I worked at my family's Chick-fil-A, and I had to learn Bechuga de Pollo or <laughs> Sanoria, Ensalada de Sanoria, right? Yeah. Carrot and raisin salad, disgusting. <laughs> and uh, or like papas fritas or all these things. I didn't know Spanish, but I knew Chick-fil-A Spanish. It was hilarious. You knew the restaurant Spanish. So, I knew restaurant Spanish, man. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I became friends, you know, with people in the back, and I tried up some Chick-fil-A's, you know, and learned even more Spanish, bad Spanish. But um, so that was my first job in the hospitality, you know, business. And my uncle really instilled a sense of if you want to come to work, you have to want to come to work. You have to want to be here. You have to want to wear this ugly red 
cap. So ugly. <laughs> you have to you have to smile. I'm sorry, Vanessa, but I know you're having a bad day. You're pissed at your boyfriend, but you have to smile. And it was like, man, that was it. So it took off from there. Yeah, I was a server um, at different restaurants in Chicago and then in New York. Um, where but I got more sommelier jobs. Going, but, uh, hold on. Going back to that Chick-fil-A, though, I mean, that, that type of mall, it, you know, when malls were like the place to go shopping, especially the, yeah. the ones that had like um, high-end uh, shops, it's uh-huh. um, you know it it can sometimes get a bit I don't know um, people can can be kind of rude sometimes or yeah. demanding uh-huh. really you know and yes. and when I think of Chick Fil A like you said I'm thinking more of fast food I don't know how it was then but. It, it's sort of like when people become demanding on something that is so supposed to be simple, right? Because that's why it's fast. This is the thing, is that Mexican nationals who would come to this Chick-fil-A would never go to McDonald's. Never. Huh. So, and most of them were very light-skinned. Um, expensive handbags. Uh, kids, you know, dressed to the nines in their fancy strollers and so for me it was these are rich people you know so it wasn't it wasn't Mexican nationals it wasn't us and them it wasn't brown skin versus you know light skin I pass as white as you know so it was class and it was like they have a lot of money they can shop at Dillard's and I could never shop at Dillard's so for me it was the first uh, introduction to trying to understand the intersection between race and class. Um, so, yeah, they were very rude. A lot of people, not all, but there were people that were very rude and demanding. And I encountered those people, you know, continue to encounter those people in the hospitality industry. And one of the skills, as you know, you have to learn is how to turn people stay around. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that. Well, first off, you know, for those that don't know, uh, Dillard's at one point was in Macy's, you know, the places that are now gone. Those were the places to shop there. They were not the, the outlets that we came to eventually know them. Those were high end or, yeah. you know, uh, places to shop. But mm-hmm. getting back to the point of, of turning people's around, uh, they turning people's day around my I got to the point of, of teaching my bartenders that you know you don't know what kind of day that person is having when they sit at the bar and the main the first few assumptions that i started to make was they're hungry and they're thirsty and so if i get them something to eat and something to drink as fast as possible more than likely they'll they'll become a different person because i know what hangry is from personal experience and sure enough the majority of the time uh that worked out perfectly because once People had something to eat and and the drink in, in in you know in their body. Uh, they became a different person. They were much easier to talk to. They were much pleasant to be around. Uh, they I always like to get people to talk to one another at the bar, and so all yeah. that would happen. But but yeah, turning people's day around sometimes is just like you know a basket of bread and and and, and oh, something to drink. You know, it's a super cool feeling, right? I just. And that's how I know I love hospitality, that those little things, you know. You have a lot of experience in the in the industry. 
and um, you have uh, focused uh, mostly on, on beverage, and that's how we know one another. It's it's uh, your beverage director at, at a place that we work together mm-hmm. uh, while I was bar manager. Um, mm-hmm. What what led you to this to just go into wine? What well, what is it about wine that attracts? Because I've done wine for a little while. I worked at wine bars when wine bars were hot back in the mid 2000s and I liked it. I really enjoyed it. But I know for a fact that I enjoy cocktails a lot more. So mm-hmm. what is it with you that you enjoy uh, wine so much? Well, I guess to I'll answer that question but also to segue from wine experience is super interesting for me because I've learned a lot about spirits and cocktails in the latter part of my career. But it did start with wine, and um, I think it started with wine. Wine, for me, has always been a way to travel. And growing up, uh, before I got to be uh, around a sophomore in college, I hadn't traveled very much around the country or internationally or so, except for to Mexico. But um, I always was fascinated by other cultures, other languages, geography, National Geographic, I mean, all this, all these things. And when I first started learning about wine, um, working as a captain in a restaurant, if you want to make great money, you've got to upsell in terms of wine, right? So yeah. you have to start learning your wine list and then take off from there. You either get excited about it and study on your own time or you don't. Um, and so I started studying on my own time, and so it was a way for me to travel, especially um, through language, through a wine's label, right? Like, what does this mean? Oh, my God. And then you learn about the history of the grape and, you know, how wine varietals and the international varietal, like Cabernet, planted everywhere versus just, uh, you know, a grape like Durga Nacional, which is in Portugal, right? Or... So, and which is not an international varietal. And then the politics, right, that, that go with people ripping up Uruguay uh, Nacional uh, to plant Merlot because the marketability of Merlot, you know, it's, yeah. it's just easier. You can get more money for a bottle of Merlot than you can for a bottle of Gal. So um, I guess to answer your question in terms of wine, that was what first uh, led me to catch the wine bug. But... For me, wine and spirits definitely are parallel, um, going, you know, and literally studying and learning from bartenders like yourself, not just about spirits and the history of spirits or the different categories, but about tasting cocktails and going like, it needs more um, creme de cassis, or it needs a bit of pineapple, or it needs a bit of this, or it needs a little bit of salt. You know, or whatever it is, just yeah. to bring the components into harmony. You start to taste with great bartenders. You're one, I think Lori uh, Shedden is one. Bartenders I worked with along the way, that taught me so much about how to taste a cocktail. And for me, it's about the components in wine being the exact same components that a cocktail should be comprised of. So that's how I got into wine, and then that's how I got into... And spirits, and so for me, being a beverage director, which encompasses beer, wine, and spirits, 
was that it was fine for me. It was a very natural progression because I had learned what makes a great cocktail. And then starting to come up with cocktails for bar programs and things like that, I started to feel more and more comfortable doing so. People, you know, call me a beverage director and that's what I've been doing for a long time, but I feel comfortable calling myself that now after learning so much about spirits and cocktails. Yeah. So I hope that is not too long of a no, not at all. question. But As a matter of fact, it, it, it created a few more questions because before we get into um, like the, um, the bar, right, where flavor compositions, uh, what the, the five different flavors are, and how you um, in particular um, were able to connect those with wine because not all sommeliers I've worked with have been able to do that well. Um, I'm curious, where, what was that experience that you had uh, working as a uh, captain? So you were a server? Is that what that was? I was a server, yes. And so, I worked uh, in Chicago while I went to college um, at a small chef-driven restaurant called Verbena. And I worked there, had to learn about wine, um, met the wine director was on vacation when I was hired I got so lucky because the wine director was on vacation I got promoted to be someone to cover his shifts in the wine bar which was right around the corner it's a little wine bar and I just got lucky I got so lucky because I had showed interest in wine so the GM was like all right see what you can do and he threw me there and it was <laughs> hilarious so so was that that? So that wasn't your your first job as a server. If you were captain, then that was pretty structured uh, restaurant. Okay. Um, so it was you know fine dining, if not at least re- very refined. And yeah. so now you're at the wine bar, and mm-hmm. what did you end up doing there? It was I was a sommelier. I ran the wine bar. It was very small, and I ran the How many wine seats? bar, and I thought. It was about 20 seats. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a half-bottle wine bar. Oh. A bar that was dedicated to half-bottles. It was called Bar Denis. Nice. And I also bought cheese for the wine bars in charge of the cheese program. And that's where I started to learn about cheese. And I, I feel like, again, you talk about cheese and spirits and wine, and they have so much in common, but... I learned a lot about cheese, and cheese is one of my passions right now, and I've learned a lot over the years yeah. just by experience and by reading and, again, by learning from other people like Kia Keenan in New York and things like that. So. Well, all of those have uh, a few things in common. One of them is that the, the good stuff, anyways, is done by craftsmen, craftswomen, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're very regional. That's the other thing they have in common. So, you know, cheese, depending where it's from, based on what the sheep or the cows eat, is going to have a certain flavor or, you know, stylistically because of the region. Same thing happens with uh, certain spirits, definitely with wine. I mean, that's that's the thing that I really, truly, truly love about wine. You were talking about Cabernet being grown all over the world and a Cabernet from Italy versus a Cabernet from from California, two entirely different things. You could see mm-hmm. you see the, the the similarities in the in the structure of the of the varietal, but they're very different from one another. Mm-hmm. 
So then, yeah, you've. How did you go about learning about wine? You went to school. Did you do your own reading? Were you doing mostly tastings? Did you have a mentor? Yeah, I went to school after the fact. After gaining, I've got about almost 20 years experience working with wine and I went to school probably like four years into it after I had already been working. I figured, well, you know, there are things I want to know. Uh, I had always been an academic and geeky and stuff like that and I wanted to learn and read so I went to, uh, became an advanced um, sommelier with the American Sommelier Association which is an organization based in New York that's pretty parallel with the Court of Master Sommeliers. And back then, the Court of Master Sommeliers didn't have much of a presence, um, I guess, amongst my peers. But the ASA was the place to be. And, you know, the who's who of this and that were in the ASA. And then I also studied with Kevin Drayley at Windows of the World. Um, oh, wow. So Vanessa mentions a Windows of the World book, and I'm going to read you a couple of uh, excerpts from their uh, forward, and um, because it, I feel like it encompasses everything that the uh, that Windows of the World is now. Windows of the World. Windows of the World Complete Wine Course was first published in 1985 time when the world and my life was very different. I've been working at Windows of the World, the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center for five years when I started writing this book. All that vanished on September 11th, 2001. More than 3,000 people lost their lives that day, including 72 of my co-workers and friends. I continue the Windows of the World wine school and updating this book on a yearly basis. Keeping both alive is my way of honoring the Windows legacy. This book was a cornerstone of my education in wine. I worked at a wine bar where that was the the manual, essentially, that you use for uh, wine training. And um, the owner, which was a uh, uh, certified uh, wine uh, educator, he used it. Um, in training where he had this two this weekend called the wine boot camp that um, you would that's what you do from that was your training from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then you worked every evening so it what it did is reinforced after going through all the information during the day and and tasting it reinforced it at night whenever you would go and do your follows or you'd be behind the bar or you know you'd be at work so it was um, definitely something that made an impression on me because the way that the word, that the, the book is broken down, it gives you um, varietals from from the same varietals in different parts of the world and how they're different. So if you are looking to learn more about wine, um, I think that this is a, a great book to to have in your library. I love I was that book. An assistant for him, mm-hmm. yeah, I was an assistant for him after. Uh, the windows of the after the after the collapse. Oh yeah. I had to move to a different uh, place. Yeah. So, um, so I guess I went to school after the fact, earned a certificate, 
and then just continued studying and really I think my most formative experiences and I always tell people that want to learn about wine taste with someone who knows a little bit more than you do because the power of suggestive uh, smelling and tasting is so powerful I mean it's amazing it's like red fruit or dark fruit you know and you get asked these questions by people who are tasting with you dark cherry red cherry uh, actually red cherry absolutely you're absolutely right now tobacco do you get tobacco that dried figgy you know that tobacco actually yeah cork dried meat uh, maybe bacon maybe you know so it's yeah. These types of things. That's how I learned about wine. But, and then, but don't you think that is... I always tasted with a tasting group. Mm-hmm. For 10 years, I tasted with a tasting group in New York City. So, But some of that, isn't it vocabulary? Because the suggestion that part, I think it's... I, I believe in the, the power of the suggestion when it comes to tasting. But I think it's also... I taste something that I can't put. I don't know what it is. And you say black cherries, yeah. like, whoa, uh-huh. yeah. And I can think of the instance of I had a black cherry soda or I had a black cherry something. And it's like, that's exactly what it tastes like. And then if you say mm-hmm. tobacco, it's like, oh, yeah, that, you know. And oftentimes is a lack of the vocabulary that, that keeps yeah. people from identifying. Well, that, that's why you want to taste with someone who has just a little more experience than you. Absolutely. Because this person, and eventually when I started, uh, became mentoring young women, it's like, I, I haven't, I, maybe I smoked once in my life, I can't remember. Actually, I did smoke when I broke up with a boyfriend one weekend. I smoked for the whole weekend. <laughs> and never mind, that's like neither here nor there. Yeah. Cut that out. <laughs> anyway, so in terms of tobacco, I smell the wine or someone else has told me you're smelling tobacco. So I'm now mentoring someone else, and I say, do you smell tobacco? They have, they say, yes, tobacco. They go on to the next person that they're mentoring, and they say, do you smell tobacco? And they say, yes. That's just how it goes. You have to taste in a group with other people. You have to. You cannot taste in isolation or read in isolation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because I think that uh, some, being a sommelier or being in the wine sector of the hospitality industry is uh, very studious. And mm-hmm. it can very easily isolate you if, if you allow it because there's so much yeah. information to, to read. You know, you can, um, you know, get into soil composition in different parts of the world. You can get into mm-hmm. specific structure in, in, in DNA of, of varietals. You can get into, you know, the, the styles and history. And there's so many mm-hmm. things that you can just sit ho- at home and read. But mm-hmm. it's not until you put it together with the wine tasting that is, it's, is really going to start to make sense. And I think that is also very communal. In, in that, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tastes better in, in, in company than it does by itself. In it my totally opinion. does. And wine is meant to be enjoyed with people and food. You know, when it comes down to it, I totally believe that. And it's all about um, when I was working as a server. Again, going back to that, and I had to learn about wine. Guests 
don't know what tobacco tastes like. They don't know what licking a rock is like because they've never <laughs> licked a rock. So they don't want to hear that crap. They don't want to hear, oh, it's very saline or mineral. They have no idea what minerality is. Some people do, but I'm saying in general. Yeah. They want to hear a story. They want to, uh, you know, just, you know, they want dark fruit, you know, sultry, um, you know, or powerful, or it's going to hit you over the head with the fruit, or, you know, analogies that they can understand. So, just going back to your point, yeah, it's about vocabulary, but um, I feel like you need to develop that vocabulary in order, but then you have to make that translate to a table or to mm. another person that is a non-onophile, right? Or else, why are you in hospitality, really? Do you just want to have your nose in the book and just study all by yourself all day? Okay, if you do, fine. But I'm not drinking wine with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so then how, how did you start into translating your wine knowledge and experience with uh, cocktails or spirits? To be honest, it was with you at 60 Degrees Mastercrafted. It was... Do you remember when we came up with that brunch cocktail menu? Yeah. Now, at this point, you'll notice that I don't really have a whole lot to say. And the reason for that is that 60 Degrees Mastercrafted was a really fun and educational place for me. But it was also extremely frustrating. It had a really tiny bar that was very uncomfortable to, to put out cocktails uh, from. And so everything that like now um we can look back and say oh yeah this is a great thing and cool thing to me still to this day is is the 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 amount of arduous work that went into developing every tiny bit of that program comes to mind so <laughs> i didn't want to tell her that because it was we did have a good time i loved tasting with uh, vanessa uh and i didn't want to bring that up but just so you'll know. Now you know, Vanessa. That was so much fun. And we got the yeah. dry ice. I had to go get the dry ice every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. To make that stupid dry ice cocktail. Yeah. Why I had to go get the dry ice is beyond me. But I had to go to H-E-B, <laughs> H-E-B at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning. Those days were rejected. There's so many anyway, things so about that place that I was like, Why? I know. <laughs> you know, some are great and some not so much, but it was that that was really yeah. a uh, uh, an experience in yeah that punctuates within uh, yeah. my history in the industry. Yeah, you were um, really taught me a lot about like Grand Classico. I was like, "What's Grand Classico?" You're like, <laughs> "You don't know what it is." And then um, there's so many spirits. You know, you introduced me to like. Let's taste it. Uh, what do you say? Let's taste it. That was always uh, that's that still my thing. But I know, especially back then, it was like let's let's taste it. Let's order a bottle and let's exactly. taste it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's what I do. You know, I started to direct bar programs, um, and it was like you know, at one point, you know, I worked at the Houstonian Hotel, and we brought in every single whistle pig rye skew that existed wow. ever. And that's the perect place for it. Like some of the stuff from the Chardonnay barrel 
exclusively from the Turkai barrel, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We had every single boss hog except for one. We had, it was an amazing program. And every time we get something in, not just whistle pig, and I'm a rye freak, but not just rye, but um, like I remember the first time I tasted uh, yellow chartreuse. I was like, what is this? Well, I got to taste it. And I would get the bartenders together, just like you. And I would say, all right, get your glass. And then they would go to get a styrofoam cup to taste. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're ridiculous. Do you remember that? I'd be like, you're yeah. ridiculous. Get a glass. Yeah. So yeah. we would go to the back. I'm like, come here, come here. When no one was at the bar. And so we would all taste. And, um, you know, that's how I learned is by tasting, tasting, tasting. And then also meeting uh, people in the business, suppliers, importers, um, and tasting with them, and, you know, meeting so many people. It just, before you know it, you know, like, I know so much about rye. It is crazy. And not a lot. There are lots of people who know more than I do, but more than I ever thought I would know. Yeah. Whenever you talk to the suppliers, they always give you some little tidbit of of their product that adds Mm -hmm. to your to to the the toolbox that you have that you've been accumulating right. from all these different suppliers and at the end yeah. of it you end up knowing more than than you realize and it's like right. oh wow right like i could teach a class on this but what are the wine regions that you would suggest for people to start off with or what are varietals varietals that you think people should definitely try wine regions to start out with um I don't know. I, I feel like rather than talking about a region, yeah. you've got to buy two bottles of wine, okay. same grape, different regions. Different regions okay. from the same country or different countries? The same grape from two different countries, two different wine regions. It can be the same country, but two different regions. Say, so if you want to talk about California Pinot Noir, uh, Santa Maria Valley and Santa Barbara, uh-huh. And then Sonoma Valley, right? Sonoma Valley, not just the coast, not near the coast, but, you know, more inward. You're going to have, or Santa Lucia Highlands, you know, two totally different expressions of Pinot Noir because they're from two different climates, two different microclimates. And the most important thing that I teach people when they're first starting to learn about wine is... Uh, fruit and sun. Sun develops fruit in a strawberry, right? Yeah. Sun develops the fruit or the ripeness in grapes. Sun develops the ripeness in citrus in grapefruit. That's why grapefruit does so well in South Texas. Okay. So if you don't have, if you have a lot of sun, you're going to have a lot of fruit. If you have less, less sun, cooler climates, you're going to have a different type of expression of fruit, maybe more acid, right? Because that component is going to be a little more expressive than the fruit or sweet component, sweetness component. Um, So that's why I say you've got to understand the role of climate, the effect of climate on how a wine is going to taste to a guest, not to you, You have to understand internally how it's going to taste to you. But again, going back to the whole idea of hospitality, right? You've got to understand 
you've got to master the art of communication. How do I communicate this to a person who's never tasted it before? How do I communicate it to my mom who I'm going, I'm trying to start, you know, introducing wine to? How do I talk about it? How do I develop this vocabulary? And it's by contrasting, by contrasting two different things. You've got to always have two bottles in front of you. Say, this is different because of this. If these two are the same, wow, they're the same. Where are they from? Two climates that are similar to each other, right? Yeah. So I always say compare and contrast. Get two different bottles in front of you and then understand the effect of climate onto how you're going to communicate a wine, right? How a wine is going to taste. And you've got to have roots in hospitality. If you're in this industry, and we want to throw around the word industry, right? Right. It's got to be about hospitality. It's got to be tied to the whole concept of hospitality, which is communication. Awesome. So you, now you touch into something that I've always found uh, intriguing about your choices as a psalm. And that is, when we worked at, at 60 Degrees, um, you had very unique, um, small production. I mean, there were damn near micro production uh, wines yeah. that were from not subclimates but microclimates. Yeah. What What is it that draw drew you to that? Uh, you've got to stay excited. You've got to stay enthusiastic. As a sommelier, you've got to keep challenging yourself. You've got to stay motivated. You know, suddenly, not so many, but people in every industry, I mean, they get, uh, you know, exasperated, jaded, tired of doing this, I hate my job. Well, if you're in hospitality and you don't like your job, guess what? Everyone's going to know it. Yeah. And so you might as well leave, walk out the door, because the whole point of being here is to make people happy. Why, are, why should they be happy if you are grumpy? Just because you have to sell Kendall Jackson? So if that makes you grumpy, then don't sell Kendall Jackson. Sell White Burgundy or Hamilton Russell from South Africa, right? Mm. Totally different expression of Chardonnay. Same grape. And then you've got to have a vocabulary. Uh, it's Chardonnay, but... Blah, 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 blah. It's, no, we don't have Kendall Jackson or Sonoma Couture, but we do have blah, 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 blah. And I like it, and it has this in common. It's a little different. And you've got to encourage people to take chances. And I'll tell you, David, that list that I did there was the most challenging wine list and fun wine list I've ever done to this day. Wow. And I've done 3,000 selection wine lists. I've done trophy bottle TRC back to 71. But with the small wine list, it's always got to be changing. And that place was busy. We were really busy back yeah. in the heyday. A lot of regulars. A lot of regulars. I know. They I've came specifically. A of them. Oh, yeah. They, they came in specifically for your suggestions. Yeah, it's like because I had to stay excited. Because it was such a small wine list, what am I going to have? Like the same. 150 wines on it like for the two years I was there that's yeah. so boring I would have been bored out of my mind you know and part of the reason we're in this is because we've got to love it because we love it 
And if you're working with a crappy wine list, and I'm sorry, a crappy wine list, I'm not going to mince words. If you're working <laughs> with a wine list that's full of producers whose wine tastes the same every vintage, then it's boring. You're going to be bored out of your mind, and you're going to be grumpy, and you're not going to like your job. If you are a talented sommelier, there are lots, there are plenty of people in this industry who are less talented, just like every other industry, right? Yeah. Who may not care. I'm just not one of those people, I guess. So. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think that uh, same thing happens at the bar. Um, yeah. You know, bartenders start to, to do the same thing they've always done and uh, get themselves bored. And, uh, and instead of uh, challenging themselves, and sometimes it's, uh, they put too much on the cocktail menu. And I've mm-hmm. learned that if you, if you, for instance, are in a place that has a lot of whiskey, just learn more about each uh, producer or each, mm-hmm. you know, each style of, uh, of whiskey. You know, I know right. about rye, so, but how much do I really know about rye? And then, right. and then all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is new stuff or here's uh, some history that is uh, super interesting um, especially when it comes to liquor and taxes and, uh, and the, the politics and uh, what survived and what didn't had a lot to do with taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's like one of the exercises I would do when I was at the Estonian Hotel. We would have bar meetings and I'd be like, all right, y'all, y'all are getting homework. They'd be like, what? I'd be like, yeah, you all have a different expression of the same single malt scotch. Glen yeah. Morandi. The, all the Lasantas, all those different finishes. I'm like, you have Sherry, you have uh, the Nectar Door, you've got this, you've got the Oloroso. They'd be like, what? I was like, if you want to sell all of these and be proud, you've got to know what they are. You know, you can't just be, it's the same thing with the wine list. You can stock it with trophy bottles, with uh, rare collectible wines with the blue chip wines yeah. but if you don't know anything about them they're just going to sit there what makes you a good song because anybody can collect those if you're at a fancy restaurant you get the allocations right yeah like you get pappy allocation but if you don't know the story behind the difference between pappy and old rip Van Winkle, yeah okay then why should you have even been given them you know i don't know that's just my two cents just my two cents well, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's it goes back to what you're saying, which is you got to keep it fun and interesting for yourself. That's how we get yeah. burnt out in part, you know, because it is monotonous. If you really think about what we do, it is monotonous. The people that have yeah. done it for a long time and are good at it is usually because you find ways to keep yourself interested. And sometimes for a long time, it can be really easy to do that. Mm-hmm. And also it's like just because I don't like this, doesn't matter. Someone else might like this. Correct. And I still have to describe it, right? Correct. It's like, you can't say, oh, I don't eat foie gras. I've never had it. Who the fuck cares if you haven't <laughs> eaten foie gras? Do you think it's sweet? The cherry sauce is sweet. You know, that's an objective question. Is the cherry sauce sweet? Yeah. You know, or is it tart? Well, I don't eat foie gras. I've never tasted it. Yeah. No, 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 get away from my table. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're right, and that 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 goes to the competence 
uh, of the staff. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. depending on, on the level that you're at and the experiences that you're uh, looking to create for, for guests, uh, that's some of the, the worst thing is whenever you can't answer direct questions that are you should know, right? Because yeah. it's on the menu. People would be surprised. It's like so many in the wine world, you know, they're going to lean on Napa Cab, you know, the blah, blah, blah at the $80, $90 price point. Yeah. The one that every other restaurant has, every other same type of restaurant has, you know, which is fine. Sometimes wines like that pay the bills. Who cares? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. have it. Go ahead. Go for it. But if you don't have an alternative, for the people who are looking for something different, that's not a good wine list, as far as I'm concerned, because you can't just pander to the, the masses. You've got, in a metropolitan city, you've got to assume that people are walking into that restaurant or hotel or bar or whatever, you know, looking for something different, a different, unique experience. And if you can't offer them that, if I were them, I would walk out the door. You know, like all you have is X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, I've had all those and I don't like them. Don't you have anything else? We've heard that a million times. Don't you have anything else? Don't you have anything else? And if you can't answer yes to that question, yeah, I don't know. I totally agree. I totally agree because whenever you have the, the wines that everyone else has, um, you can make it in the sense of you have the ambiance they prefer, right? Because I've worked right. in places like that, and then is is the products that people are familiar with, at the price point that they're they're willing to spend, and so they show up. But yeah, that that is, is yeah. which is fine. But that's to me that's a, a really thin line because if another place ups their game, they have the same list as you. Well, you're gonna lose part of your of your of your consumer. Versus, yeah. you know, again the the wine list and the places that have. Uh, something unique and different like that wine list that you had like, again like people came in for your suggestions people came in mm -hmm. to see what you were doing what what you what you've done to the wine list same thing happens mm -hmm. with cocktail menus or whiskey list or, oh, or, yeah. or things things like that but even for instance if I was to have a hundred different whiskeys in my back bar that would mean nothing if my staff didn't know what was behind them so. It's like that famous story about the bartender, the guest who ordered a Cosmopolitan, and the bartender was like, I don't do Cosmopolitans. So she gave the server a deconstructed Cosmopolitan with all the ingredients in separate containers to give to the guest to make their own Cosmopolitan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, famous wow. story. Like, real, real, really happened. Wow, no, you know, it just has the bad rep of being popular. Right. You know, same thing with the lemon drop. The lemon drop is, mm -hmm. it's it's easy, it's balanced, um, and it's easy for me to get people to drink a, a daiquiri that's not frozen if I also have a lemon drop on the menu. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, they're very similar, like a gimlet, you know? Yeah. Gee, that's my good yeah so one last question as mm -hmm. as a female a latina in the in the world of wine um is it is that a benefit is it a drawback have you 
make sure that it had no impact on what you've been able to do? I mean, what is that? What is that like? Well, I think there's a real emphasis, and I almost say movement, um, for better or for worse, right now, to showcase people of color in the wine industry, in the hospitality industry, or wine industry in general, but especially people working in hospitality and service. And um, there have been a couple of incidents recently uh, in the hospitality industry which have highlighted prejudices and inequalities and social injustices. So as a result, there's very much a movement of inclusion and diversity. And uh, I'm really not sure how I feel about that um, because I want to stand on my own two feet. And I feel like I have stood on my own two feet this entire time. And now people are reaching out to me, you know, and I, I have to ask, is it because I'm Latina? Is it because one of my names is Trevino? You know, is it because, you know, I am a Latina that works for Orlando Cross, you know? And it just, that's just like a, a banner for them, you know? Or is it, uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's been, I have to say, it's been easier for me than other Latinos because I do pass as white some, most of the time. But of course you find that other people of the same ethnicity or race, you know, if they're Latina, they can see the Latina in you right away. By the way you talk or the way you pronounce something or the texture of your hair, the waviness, the thickness, whatever it is. But um, it's, I will never forget the time that I was working in a very fancy restaurant and I was just somewhere on the floor at that time. And a table, a couple dressed to the nines was sitting down and I approached the table and I said, do you have any questions about the wine uh, And they said, may we speak to the sommelier please? I said, absolutely. Yes, is there anything you wanna talk about? And he said, I asked to speak to the sommelier so I said, okay. So I walked away to the corner. I walked right back to the table. And I said, hi, is there anything you'd like to talk about on the line? <laughs> it was the best feeling ever. <laughs> and um, with a smile, trying to brighten their day. And to me, it just it goes back to hospitality. And I feel like it's, uh, as a woman, it's, it's more socially acceptable for me to be nurturing and a good listener and all those things that ladies are supposed to be right all those uh, terms that people throw around women are better listeners uh, we're more poised we're genteel we're you know whatever and I I don't know how I feel about that you know I just uh, it's just, it's a hot topic right now. And I think I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But it's been both difficult and easier for me. And I feel like it's uh, one of the reasons it's been easier is because I went to a great college where I got a great education. 
and I was afforded a great education. Um, and that will, that's taken me very far. And I feel like education is key, um, just as much as, yes, being genteel, a good listener, boys, well-dressed, blah, blah, blah. You know, and again, you have the intersection of class as well as, you know, race. How are you going to pass, right? How much does your suit cost? You know, people say you should dress just as well as the people you're serving. Other people say you should dress just under how the people you are serving because you never want to upstage them. Well, whatever. It's neither here nor there. Just wear whatever is dry cleaned, okay, in your closet, <laughs> please. So, I don't know if that answers your question. It's a really difficult question to answer. Um, I mean, what I hear from you is, is it seems like you were, you started off on the right track because you went to a good college and that, you know, good university yeah. will give you uh, a broad exposure to, um, you know, e- uh, uh, etiquette as well as yeah. just worldly information. So that way you're not the person in the group that doesn't have an opinion or, or can't right. say something about something. But also right. you develop the skills set, I would say, that... Um, that has allowed you to to develop the the career that you've had, mm-hmm. and so I think that right now there is there's a, a lot that's been tossed into the public square, so to speak, you know, and um, and the internet is is such a a place where everyone has an opinion, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of how dumb um, or um, how informed they they're they're given equal weight and um mm-hmm. and i think that that confuses things for people that are thoughtful because you know unfortunately right now we have to be careful about the things we say because someone is going to misconstrue it and uh yeah. and i think that's the worst one of the, the the not the worst but one of the bad things about the internet and everything being so open and public is that mm-hmm. um, people who don't understand what's being said have an opinion about it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I ask these questions because I like to hear how people are dealing with and navigating these times. I mean, we, we're in and the, you've got to be careful about what you say. Yeah. Because it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. People want to pull out of it whatever they want. Right. Interesting. Well, Vanessa, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, thank you for uh, for taking the time and uh, for sharing a, a tiny bit of uh, what you know. It was my pleasure, David. I had such a blast talking to you <laughs> and reliving old time. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to add a little bit to what I said there at the end of the uh, interview. I think that going to a good college means going to a place where they take interest in you as a complete person. In other words, whenever you're in class, you're not just responsible for uh, giving the right answers, but you're also responsible for uh, being being able to have a conversation, being able to give your opinion and give a reason why you have that opinion. So you're able to defend it. 
I think that the internet and in particular social media has allowed opinions to exist and flourish regardless of their merit or lunacy. Social groups form that promote ideas that are destructive. Those ideas have always existed, but they have never had the space to fester as they do now. The internet has brought together what in, in the past had been nearly an impossible connection and unity to harmful ideas and destructive objectives. We have to recognize that our lives have forever been changed by this phenomenon, the internet. Since its inception, it has both given freedom to the individual while it has monopolized mass distribution of information. You have the freedom to start a blog and say whatever you want, but you won't go too far without the virtual advertising platform of social media. There's a very small group of interests that control those platforms. Working in fine dining, I witnessed the class system that keeps working class people pinned against one another. I noticed that it was more about class than race, but it was race that was often used as one of those harmful ideas that destroy some communities while protect others. Same opinions which we hear today that divide have been deployed in the past, for decades, even centuries. The ruling class creates a preferred group, then use them as buffer as they attack a, a different group. Groups of people which have more in common with each other than the people that manipulate them. Yet, it has always worked. <clears throat> Why? I believe that it is a hopeful and sometimes hateful discontent with yourself. With the incongruity of your talent and your status in society. That is how the ruling class co-ops members of an oppressed group to speak against the interests of that group. Look at Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. They no longer have anything in common with the people who supported them as fans all these years. They fall into the same category as working class politicians who become wealthy with the support of their communities, yet often vote against its interest. It is gaming the system of support for one of your own into creating someone who loathes being compared to you. It is now time for you to be the best version of yourself so that you don't have to live vicariously by buying merchandise from those who wish to never be like you again. If you have a smart device, you can listen on Alexa. Um, you can ask for the Open Bar experience. Also, we have our own website, which is openbar.space. You can check us out also on your favorite app, whether it's iHeartRadio, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Check it out, the Open Bar Experience. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and keep the conversation going. <laughs>